Welcome back to the Sunday Long Read Podcast. My name is Don Van Natta. My guest today describes herself on her Twitter bio as, quote, writer slash woman about town. Words in many places, close quote, which is pretty much perfect. Rachel Syme is a culture writer, critic, essayist, and do-it-all freelancer living in New York. She also runs a popular newsletter series about perfumes called The Dry Down, alongside her friend and fellow writer Helena Fitzgerald. Rachel's writing has appeared in many, many places, from the New York Times to Elle to Grantland to Billboard and at least another dozen esteemed publications. Rachel is currently working on a very intriguing nonfiction book for Random House, which she says is, quote, exciting and terrifying and a whole process. It also gives my mother something to tell people about what I do all day, close quote. Rachel, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So I love that quote about it giving your mom something to tell people about what you do all day, the book. So your mom prefers, I guess, to describe you as a uh, soon-to-be author rather than a great profile writer and freelancer. I mean, I think she's uh, become comfortable with both uh, assignations. I, you know, when I first began, it was hard to describe what I did. I would publish an article here and there and... um, my parents, who are both doctors, were proud of it and, they, and excited to see my name in publications that they understood and read before, like the New York Times, but didn't totally know how to describe what I was doing. So when I started writing a book, it became a lot more clear that I was a, you know, capital W writer. That's how I, you know, people that aren't writers think all writers write books, you know. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, I, yeah. I think, and I, I mean, it was an easy way for me to start thinking of myself as a writer, too. Once you're writing a book, then you can say, well, at least I have this going on and now I'm authentic or real. Although, again, I, I actually think that a lot of my favorite writers haven't written books yet. <laughs> well, you, you're, you're very authentic and real, and you're one of my favorite long-form profile writers. I'm so thrilled you're here with us today. Oh, thank you. I want to talk a little bit about your book, Rachel. Sure. Uh, my understanding, it's about F. Scott Fitzgerald, who is possibly my favorite writer of all time oh really what's your favorite what's your favorite oh I love I love all of his short stories I love all of his short stories I love mm. you know uh, the, the diamond as big as a Ritz is one of my favorites uh, his novels are fantastic his letters are great I've read every bio about him I'm just I'm a Fitzgerald fanboy I just love Fitzgerald it's, it's the best well then and, this is good timing because we're talking today on the um, Gatsby anniversary it was oh, published on right. April 10th. That's right. Yes, we're recording on a Tuesday, <laughs> April 10th, and it's the Great Gatsby anniversary. And Yeah. And so I noticed, Rachel, that it's also about a gossip. It said a gossip columnist uh, somewhere on the web yes. and didn't identify the gossip columnist. Of course, instantly mm-hmm. I knew it was Sheila Graham, who Fitzgerald had a torrid yep. affair with uh, late in life. And actually, Fitzgerald died, I believe, in Sheila Graham's apartment in Hollywood, right? Yes, in 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 um, clutching the mantle of the fireplace in her apartment, right. which was just a, a catty corner to his apartment. They lived in almost one street away from each other at the end. Um, but so he was spending quite a bit of time at her house. So so broadly speaking, mm-hmm. your book is about Fitzgerald and Sheila Graham's relationship. Yeah, I mean, it is it it is about their relationship and the mythology of their relationship and the way people mythologize relationships. Um, you know, Sheila Graham was a person who 
considered herself a little bit of a female Gatsby. She came from nothing. She grew up in the slums of East London and uh, worked her way through um, London society, as many women in the 1920s did, by becoming an actress and marrying a, a older man and um, sort of reinventing herself, giving herself a stage name. Um, and then she started writing about the experience. In a lot of ways, she was writing hot takes before anyone. You know, she wrote these these great articles <laughs> when she was in her teens um, about being a chorus girl. She was working in the London uh, theater for in these in this genre called the chorus, the review, which is not really a genre that we have anymore. It's sort of died in the days of vaudeville but it was you know where a lot of different songs noel coward would write the book and then all these people would perform songs in between it was sort of a light comic fair for the evening she would was in these productions and then she started writing for the, the daily mail these tell-alls about being in these productions and what it meant to be a chorus girl and how the stage door johnnies would come and wait for her outside the you know, after the performances, and she got quite a name, made quite a name for herself in London by being this chorus girl who told all. Um, and then that telling all continued throughout her life as she uh, sort of evolved into being a gossip columnist and then eventually a memoirist who told all about her relationship with Fitzgerald, uh, you know, a dozen times. So it's about telling, it's about the concept of telling, kissing and telling. It sounds great. It sounds fantastic. And yeah. how did you come up with the idea for the book? Well, you know, it was a random run-in with a paperback copy of one of her memoirs at the Strand, I believe. And she, the first book of hers I ever bought was called College of One, which was just reissued um, by Melville House last year or the year before. I think it was 2015, maybe two, three years ago now. But it was... Um, this book called College of One, it hadn't been reissued yet when I found it. And it was a pulp copy, one of those mass market 1960s cheesy copies, yellowed at the edges. And it was just funny to me. It said College of One, the education of a woman on it. You know, how Fitzgerald, how F. Scott Fitzgerald educated the woman he loved. And I thought to myself, well, this is a book about Zelda. And then I saw that it was right. written by Sheila Graham. <laughs> And said, who is this? And what is this? And I had always been a huge Fitzgerald fan, but not really, you know, looked into his life all that much. Just had loved the prose so much. Um, and and I just took it home with me and read it cover to cover and was so fascinated by this story because, you know, they had this Pygmalion year at the end where he had devised something of a college syllabus for her and she was doing the reading and writing short stories that he was editing and correcting and it was just hilarious to me in a lot of ways but also sad and poignant and loving and you know there was a lot about you know tragic and faded romance in this book so I started looking into it further and I became really fascinated by her life and the women that she came in contact with and the women that had to sort of live like her to get ahead in the world which was a very early 20th century concept. I mean, she was, you know, she makes a joke in one of her memoirs about how she was called an adventuress, which at the time was a sort of slang word for a woman who, you know, quote unquote, traversed the globe, by which it means, you know, bounced from man to man to get ahead. But I feel like she then sort right. of reclaimed that word over the course of her life and 
Um, I mean, listen, she's no hero in a lot of ways, too. She has a lot of, you know, she's she's a, a, a you know, she she was against the women's lib movement when it first happened. And then later she declared herself to to have realized she was probably one of the first women's libbers. But, you know, there you know, she has a very early 20th century life in the way that it's not easily grafted onto the way we would see women's stories now. But there's a lot about her story that fascinated me. So I decided to dig into it. Oh, that's great. And speaking of digging into it, you're doing a lot of the research at the New York Public mm-hmm. Library. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. I do. I do. Uh, I, I've done a lot of the research, but yes, I did a lot there because um, I was able to work in a place called the Allen Room, which is such a wonderful wonderful boon for writers who live in New York City, which is if you have a book contract, you can get a carol in the library and um, you get to check out your books for a whole year and they sort of live with you while you're writing, which is just, and you get a place to work inside the library, which is just the most, you know, fantastical thing, especially if like me, you grew up thinking like, oh, I want to live inside the mixed up files of Miss Basley, Frank Weiler and have, you know, access to the private chambers <laughs> of the Met and the New York Public Library and uh, and the Natural History Museum and all these places that felt just mythological to me. So, you know, there's, you know, the going into the Allen Room is one of my favorite things in the entire world. Um, and I still do it. And, you know, you walk into the New York Public Library and you walk onto the second floor and there's this door that is like a secret door and you swipe this card and you get in and everybody that looks at you like, oh my gosh, she's going into the wall. Um, it's like a secret chamber. You feel very much like you're in a, you know, in a, the movie Clue or something. You're just like disappearing into the bookcase. What an incredible privilege it's, going into it's, the secret door. It's just been amazing. Describe it. Oh my yeah, God, I had no, no idea. It, it's yeah. great. No, it's it's been one of the, the, the coolest parts about this process is the, the working at the library. And, you know, um, I've, I've also, you know, gone to several other archives, Princeton, South Carolina, um, the Academy Library in L.A. Um, it's been a really fun thing to get to research this book all across the country. Um, you know, but also it's my first one and it has been a learning experience all along the way. Writing a book is no joke. It is a big undertaking and it is scary and I find myself alternatively like odd and and so grateful for the process and totally freaked out by it <laughs> if that makes any sense well I, I, I it makes complete sense to me I felt the same way when I did my first book this is now 15 years ago or or longer I was totally freaked out Rachel same way you know pivoting between sort of feeling really excited and thrilled and just terrified and how am I ever, how am I ever going to get this done mm-hmm. just, oh yeah you know, it's um and 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 it's humbling like like it's thrilling at first when you sign the contract it's this great thrilling thing and and I had the same I asked you about what your mom said because my mom and dad were sort of the same way I, I think they felt even though I was working at the New York Times I felt I finally had arrived because I had signed a book contract you know what I mean I was okay he's finally gonna he's gonna be an author this is what you know he wanted to do as a little kid and so you have this like moment of wow, I've I've made it, but then you got to do it. Well, then you got to do it, yeah. And you know, I've been doing it for a while. That that also, you know, you have to structure this long project, which for me has been the most humbling. Like you said, humbling is the is the right word for it. Um, part because for, you know, structure in terms of pieces for long form pieces for me has always been sort of intuitive. It's like you know, um, some people say structure is the hardest part for them when it comes to composing 
and we'll, we'll get into this later, but, you know, long form journalism. And for me, structure has always been somewhat of that's the part that feels like rhythmic and natural to me. It's like I always know where I want to start. I, I will I will know the minute um, I'm interviewing somebody and they say the thing I want to start with. It's like internally, then my countdown clock begins, even in the middle of the interview. Like I'm like, OK, we got to lead. Um in terms of a book, it's like <laughs> structure is so crazy. It's like you, you just feel like you're in a beautiful mind and you just have this wall full of, you know, notes and you're stringing red string between them. And you just feel like a crackpot constantly um, just trying to make this thing cohere. Oh, I love how you just dis- I, I love how you describe that, Rachel. That's that's perfect. I had a, <laughs> a friend of mine, Debbie Sontag, who I worked with at the Times, mm-hmm. who had a great way of describing Long form writing versus book writing. Long form writing, she says, you're in a boat and you're going downstream really, really fast. Yes. And sort of the currents just sort of carry you. And book writing, she says, you're in the middle of a lake and it's completely still. There's no wind and you're in a canoe and you got to just start paddling. And I thought that was such a great way of describing it. That's perfect. And it's also, I think, I think somewhat when you're in the middle of the lake and it's placid and there's no cloud in sight, you have a lot more time to feel lonely and also ponder the situation you find yourself in. Whereas when you're, you know, in the in the Whitewater Rapids, you have no time to feel by yourself. You're just like, well, I'm in this boat. I got to get out. And I'm scrambling, scrambling, scrambling. It's an active all the way. It's like cardio, you know, whereas the other the other activity, you have a lot more time to like ponder the nature of solitude, which can get really dark. Yes. Yes. <laughs> you know, I think here's the thing. I have a lot of friends who have written books and I'm so in awe of them. Honestly, um, the poet and essayist Ann Boyer, who just won a, a, a Whiting Award, I believe, and is one of my favorites. And she has a new book coming out from FSG next year. But she put a tweet up, I think, a few months ago that has like continued to resonate with me that said, like, I used to be really in awe of books that were good. And now I'm in awe of books that are done. Um, and <laughs> I honestly, I, I think that's where I'm at. I'm like, whoa, you finished a book. My God, you're a superhero. Um, but I am also rounding that finish line myself. So I'll get to hopefully people will, will consider me someone who has finished a book very soon. Well, best of luck with it. Um, Thank you. Rachel, I want to ask you about your background. You, you grew up in Albuquerque. Uh, yep. and went to sta- went, and you went to Stanford. When growing up, or maybe even in college, did you decide you wanted to be a writer? And and what made you want to be a writer? Well, that's like a very. I had a lot of different aspirations growing up. I think I was an expressive child, and I had a lot of different uh, pathways that that expression could have taken. I was always writing. I mean, I. Um, won a citywide writing contest when I was eight years old in Albuquerque, New Mexico for an, uh, an essay. I wrote about how, how much I liked my grandfather and thought he was a cool guy. Um, I, and you oh, know, wow. I also, I, so cool. <laughs> yeah, right. And I also would write these epic tales when I was in elementary school that would, um, you know, end up in the, the, the school literary magazine. Like I wrote this star cross story about, um, called Comeo and Champouliet about like two items in the drugstore that fell in love but could never be together because they were in separate aisles. I remember that won a prize. But I was never really like, <laughs> I'm going to be a writer. In a lot of ways, I thought I was going to be an actress because I that's what I really focused on 
my entire adolescence, I was a singer and an actress and I, you know, auditioned for drama school and I thought I was going to do the whole thing. And then, um, you know, I found it to be maybe a two vocational choice and I really loved school and I thought, well, I have this opportunity to go to this, to Stanford and study a bunch of different things. And so I sort of moved from that acting bug into the more liberal arts trajectory, which I sometimes still wonder like, oh, writing is performance. And I still have a lot of that performative sort of like itch that I have to scratch. And I think I get it through the writing. But, you know, I never really thought I was going to be a journalist when I was in college. I thought I was going to maybe be a creative writer um, or I, you know, I did a co- <laughs> I had I had several like, you know, sp- I never like really worked for the newspaper. I had a column when I went abroad. I went to Oxford for a year and I wrote some like dispatches from England that are, I'm sure one could Google now, but I don't think they're online. And thank goodness, because they're probably deeply embarrassing where I'm like, wow, the British have tea. That's incredible. Um, They're very, you know, whatever. I was, you know, 18, 19. I, I, who knows? But I, I definitely, um, knew more than I wanted to be a writer that I wanted to live in New York City. Like, that was really the the thing for me. It was like, whatever will get me to New York, you know? I, I And for me, when I looked at careers that one could have in New York City, I mean, having lived here now for over a decade, I'm like, well, there's like a, a million different careers that get you to New York. But for some reason in the popular imagination that I had of the city, you move here because you're either on Broadway or you're like, writing for the New York Times. Like, those are the two ideas I had as to what someone does in New York City. Um, So I, you know, just aimed my arrow at the thing I thought I could accomplish, which was more on the writing and working for magazine side. And what was it about New York City that called to you when you were young? I mean, it's the same siren song that all weirdos hear when they grow up in a place that has... (laughs) you know, very little going on and, and they're attracted to, you know, the arts and the idea of skyscrapers. I mean, here's the thing. I love, I love New Mexico. I think it is so beautiful. I tell everybody that I meet, you know, I, I shake them and tell them you must go to this place. It doesn't look like anywhere else in the entire world. It looks like you're on the surface of the moon. It feels like you're on the surface of the moon. It is a totally bizarre and wonderful world, but there's also, a different pace there and I think it wasn't the pace that I like my rhythm was just off with the place I and it, and whenever and I went to New York a couple times as a young person I think I went there for the first time when I was in the sixth grade and I remember feeling like you know some people it's that classic thing you know it's like someone gets off the bus in New York City and some people look up at the billboards and they're like oh my god I'm overwhelmed and it's so dirty here and so scary and some people are just like oh my gosh, I've already lived here spiritually for a thousand lifetimes, you know? And for me, that was, <laughs> and it was that for me. I mean, it's like the minute I got to New York, I was just like, oh yeah, this is where I'm supposed to live. It's the biggest, best city in the, and with all the most interesting people and the nightlife and the things happening and the culture. And this is where Broadway is and the opera is and the Metropolitan Museum is, you know, I have a very, you know, maybe it's just that I read too much Eloise or something, but I just saw myself as someone who would be, moving in the currents of a, of a cosmopolitan place rather than a pastoral. So I think that's when I, when I thought about that, New York seemed like the only place to go. And your first gig in New York was as an editorial assistant at New York magazine. 
So it was actually was as an intern. Like? Um, I started oh, as, as an, an intern. intern. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, well, so uh, there's a couple things that happened when I came to New York. I was, let's see, I took something called the um, Radcliffe Publishing Course, which is now run by Columbia. You know about it, right? Yes, I've heard of yeah, it. Yeah, so I, that's what actually got me out to the city because it was a summer program and I applied for it and got in and it basically was this crash course. Um, I don't know if they still do it, but at the time, uh, it's so funny. A lot of people that work in publishing now came out of this um, course that I, I met a lot of people that way. But, um, you know, I think, I'm trying to think, like my like the historian and writer Alexis Co. I think was in my class and a few other people. But, you know, basically it was a, you live at the N- uh, Columbia dorms and you go to these lectures and hear from people who actually work in publishing about how it works on the magazine and the book side. I mean, this was a little... I'm dating myself now, but this was kind of just before you could have a career on the internet writing. So there were not anybody from, you know, digital publications coming to talk to us. It was very much like, this is how you could get a job at Simon & Schuster, or this is how you could get a job at Condé Nast if you were lucky, you know. And so for me, that was a great introduction because I just sort of got to meet everybody and understand the lay of the land. And um, I applied for an internship at New York Magazine pretty early on from arriving and I got it and that's what I did for the fall um and then because I was not aware that interns are not supposed to be just constantly pitching stories I just immediately started <laughs> doing that um <laughs> so I was yeah I was in <laughs> I was interning for the culture desk and pitching ideas literally every day um I'm sure I was the most annoying least favorite intern of everybody there but um I ended up getting you know pieces placed which was really exciting when I was for a young person from you know your first year in New York it's so funny because you know I talked to a lot of like beginning writers now writers that have just moved to the city are just starting out and they all have such different opportunities than I had and such more more exciting in a lot of ways you know they're they're like first big piece is like a a big piece at BuzzFeed or at you know the cut or they're writing you know they're they're out of the gate getting a something on you know the, the some sort of digital publication I didn't have I mean I think barely any of the 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 publications that we know now I mean it was 2005 so it was not quite cresting I think the 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 going idea was that you are an editorial assistant at a at, you know house and garden and that's like what you want to do um and to get into this world which is now I don't think a lot of people think of themselves as getting into the magazine world at all but that was my goal. My goal was to work at magazines. Yeah, there are so many more opportunities, as you said, from the fall of 2005 when you were starting out. There's many more opportunities to write um, because of the just explosion of digital platforms for a young writer now as opposed to 12 or 13 years ago. Though, I mean, I feel pretty fortunate that I, in a lot of ways, though, that I wasn't encouraged to write when I was like 21 years old. Because, I mean, yes, I did a few pieces for New York Magazine and and other places, but I really did start out on the editorial side um, and wasn't really, I mean, it was a very much a vibe of like pay your dues, you know, like get the coffee. And then if you get the coffee for enough time, you get to 
fact check this piece. And if you fact check this piece, then maybe you get a, a you know, to work in the fact checking department part time, which I, I got to do. Maybe you get to go report a story or you get to, you know, follow along with the reporters. They report a story. And, you know, it was about sort of apprenticeship and learning little by little. Whereas I feel like now a lot of people are thrown into the deep end and just told to paddle or and swim. And I think that, you know, I felt I feel really fortunate that I was able to do it the other way only if only because I would have completely embarrassed myself at that age writing for the public a lot. I, I agree, <laughs> Rachel. We had very similar backgrounds. I, I was an intern at Newsday when I was in college and it was the same thing. I was sort of an editorial assistant intern. I got coffee. I fetched pencils and I was exactly like you annoying every editor I came in contact with pitching stories. And finally, after four or five weeks, we're like, all right, go to the eastern end of Long Island and start writing stories. And it was... I mean, it was a great opportunity, but it was just I just annoyed people enough. Well, yeah. And, and you know, I got to do a couple couple cool stories. I mean, I, one of my first big stories was that I thought so cool because it was the cover of the culture pages, which in, if you remember old New York magazine, that was like a big deal to have the cover of the culture pages. Um, and it was the this profile of a, of a lead singer of a band called Beirut that had gotten really, really popular, really, really fast. And the lead singer, Zach, was from New Mexico. And so I had this like in. Right. So I was like, oh, I can write about him because he's an Albuquerque guy. And, I, and so I, I can get him and. So that ended up happening. But then, you know, uh, for every cool profile that I was able to write, I had to do pieces. And by the way, I was super excited for these, too. I just they were just when I look back, very funny assignments. Like one of the things I did once was spend three weeks researching a piece for the summer issue about the coldest locations in the city. If you get too hot that you can go cool off. So I was like literally going to like furrier's for refrigerators and also cigar humidors and and also like the fairway freezer in harlem to take the temperature in there (laughs) it's great (laughs) and like that was i was so psyched because i was like i'm a reporter i'm on the town i'm at a i'm at a cigar humidor in midtown and i'm i'm just like taking the temperature like i'm really doing it like i am hitting the streets and it is so funny. I'm like, who cares? But I mean, at the time, I felt like it was very important journalism, service, service journalism. Um, like anyone is going to walk into a fur fridge unannounced. But apparently that was what I was recommending New York Magazine readers do. Um, so that was a I mean, it, but it was a great I mean, and it, it was I look back on that time and, you know, there's always rose colored glasses, but it was like. I was living with four roommates and I was waitressing on the weekends. I had a a brunch service that I waitressed two two days a week Um, and I was working as an intern and I was so like dazzled by this world. I miss the innocence that I felt then. I was just like everything was exciting to me. Yeah, it sounds a little bit almost like a New Yorker talk of the town kinds of pieces that you were doing for New York Magazine. Well, yeah, I mean, they were more, there was a time that I caught the tail end of when New York was more obsessed with itself. Um, And I think it came at the very tail end of like the Sex and the City thing. I mean, we're now in the 20th, oh man, it's the 20 year anniversary of Sex and the City this year. But, you know, I think that the, the fumes that were coming off of that show were reverberating in the journalism that was being done, which was that for a long time, there were a lot of stories that could get published that was like, 
what's going on in New York, right? I mean, if you look at old New York magazines, one of the things I love about them, and this, and people forget that this kind of continued into the mid-2000s, is that there are entire issues of that magazine that were just about the city. And I mean, there still are. I mean, there's the best of New York issue and that kind of thing. But I mean, you could really like pitch a story and be like, there's a strange fish market downtown that has like a cool juggler that like juggles the carp and like everyone comes to see the show at six and they're like, that is a feature, you know? And now it's like, I think, I mean, the metro section is so thin and it's, it's you know, I get so sad about it because like, I love New York stories. I love New York on New York stories. You know, I think one of the reasons I became obsessed with moving here is because that's what I was sort of reading growing up. I was like reading the talk of the town and I was reading, you know, um, those, you know, the big, yeah, everything. I was reading the New Yorker and thinking like, that's what it means to live in New York is to, is to be Don, you know, be obsessed with New York or be Maeve Brennan walking around and just talking about strangers that you see shopping. Um, you know, and that still happens. And it's actually come to pass that I'm doing a lot more of that again. But it was how I started my career. And it was really, really fun because everything because you got your stories by walking around. Rachel, what is your favorite New York story that you wrote? Hmm. I mean, I wrote a piece that I really loved. Um, that was a very silly little piece, but for the New Yorker online a couple years ago about a tie-dye store. Do you know that one? I can oh, yes. send it to you. Well, yes, it's I read called that. The, it's awesome. the, the Case of the Curious Tie-dye Store. And it was just about this tie-dye store in my neighborhood. And everybody in my neighborhood was talking about this place. It was like, what is this place? Why is it huge? Why does it have 5,000 works of tie-dye in it? And it popped up all of a sudden. It didn't have a real sign. It felt like it must be a front for something, but it couldn't possibly be a front for something because it was just so explosive with tie-dye outfits. And um, it turned out, I went, you know, I went in there and got the entire backstory of this guy who owned it, who was called Starhawk, who used to tour with the Grateful Dead and has this, you know, had like, you know, moved to India for a while, has like an amazing, hilarious, like New York story. Like he was raised in Manhattan and then sort of like dropped out in the 60s and basically was like living out a live version of the musical hair. And it was just very funny to me that he ended up with this tie story store. But I loved doing that because it was very much like, what is going on in our neighborhood? Everybody's talking about this thing. And then they let me write it for The New Yorker, which obviously then sort of lets you go deeper and think about what it means and what this, the appearance of a of a tie-dye store in the 2010s might mean and what it might say. And, and that piece was actually so funny because I still go to that store because um, they – it's where I buy my crystals and my incense and I love Starhawk and Eddie the guys that run it they've like become I've, I've become friendly with them now and they constantly tell me people still come in and they're like I, I read about you from the New Yorker um and I wanted to see this store and I'm like oh man I that's like exactly what you want to do with a piece like that is like make people aware of a local thing and then they are aware of it um but I think yeah I mean that was one I really liked I um I'm trying to think of other things I've done. I mean, I've done a lot of sort of style C-section stuff that has been really fun where, you know, you're like, this is the hot new thing or the hot new store. I I, I love pieces like that. I love it. And, you know, and I've written about 
New York characters. I wrote about um, Adita Sherman and Bill Cunningham and Iris Apfel. I mean, gosh, if there's something that I love, I mean, if there's a beat I could have that I don't currently have, it would just be like eccentric New Yorkers, old eccentric New Yorkers. I think one person at the Times gets to do that who like, I think it's this this guy who who writes for the Metro section who every now and then they let him go like find a 90 year old person who used to be famous and like they're like surprise like Liz Smith is still alive and then she passed away but you know it was like he wrote that piece or he was you know he does the whole like surprise did you remember Stephen Sondheim like I and I would oh man I would just love to be that on that beat I want you to have this job Rachel. we have to make this happen <laughs> this that would be awesome that would be so you are just you're perfect for that for that gig we got to well, find you. a place to let you do that that would be so great. So one of the things I'm really struck by is just your approach to profile writing. Sure. And, and especially your details and your details in your stories and um, the way you use them. So first of all, in your work, just how important are details when you are out reporting a profile? Well, details to me are, well, like you said, <laughs> they, are, they, they form the basis of most of my stories. I mean, I feel like when I started writing profiles, um, I came at it from, as I think most people who, if they're being really honest, tell you they came to profiles is because they're voyeurs in some, you know, they in a, in a literary way. But, you know, they, they love, they're curious. You know, they're the person who would always ask one question too many at a dinner party. You know, that's the kind of person that's really good at writing a profile because you have to ask people pretty much everything and so I think you know for me the details are the thing I want to know right away I'm always obsessed with getting to the to the to the the fine grain as quickly as one can because I think that's where you really get to know a person I mean I think sometimes you know details and profiles can be superfluous as like whoa you know she was wearing blue nail polish that day and how can I spool that out into an entire like con you know treatise on her existential angst but I don't I mean I think that for me it's all about sort of mannerisms the way people style themselves I think can be interesting I think but you know just the details of how they approach a question you know are they hesitant are they excited are they garrulous are they you know feeling vague that day I think you have to really be present and you also have to just really be um noticing I mean it's just but I would do that anyway. Like I said, I'm just this curious person. It's like I love looking at strangers. It's, you know, there are a few places in New York I'll still go and spend the entire afternoon because it's just such good people watching. I mean, I, I love to look at strangers. One of those places, by the way, is the is the is the restaurant at Barney's. You will just oh, sorry at Burger Goodman. You will just see the best strangers you've ever seen in your life. I take myself there two afternoons a year to just look. It's all these old. They're like peacocks. It's great. Um, but I think you have to you have to be interested in strangers as as much as you are interested in famous people to write profiles, if that makes sense. No, that totally does. And that's like that's like sort of exercising the observant muscle. Right. You go there. You're not writing about any of these people, but you're just observing. And that sharpens that sense of of being a keen observer that you need to you need to do that and need to have that when you're doing these profiles. Well, And that's why I always like. You know, a lot of my Twitter, and we can come to Twitter a little bit later, is just observational. You know, it's like, oh, there's a woman on the two train that looks exactly like her poodle. You know, just like things like that, where you're just like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm noticing, I'm noticing that like New York is just the best 
place if you're a noticer. I mean, you will see weird shit every single day. I mean, you know, I was reading an interview with Sloane Crosley who just put out a new book and she was saying something like, you know, she just like walks her, she, she walks around and sees trash on the street. She has like an eye for it and she's always picking out strange things people have thrown away and she has an entire like photographic catalog of like trash, pictures of trash she's taken. Like she just loves to go take pictures of people's trash and I'm like, I would never do that. I would never think to do that. But Everybody in New York has their own observational patterns that help them sort of understand, uh, have a deeper understanding of the world. And it's it's just such a like fertile place if that's how you want to walk around, you know. So for me with profiles, it's like I think my natural curiosity has always helped me because I'm I'm a prober, you know, I want to get deeper with people. I mean, I think, you know, obviously profiles are really, really tricky an interesting transactional relationship where, you know, you're trying to get details out of somebody for the purpose of writing about them, which is always going to feel a little bit, uh, you know, inorganic is probably the kindest way to put it. Well, yeah. And I want to ask you about that. You said, uh, and I want to read this quote to our listeners of something you said about the transactional nature of profile writing. Here's the quote, I'm quoting Rachel here, quote, you have this sense that you're bonding, but at the same time, you're also going to betray them. Because if you hear this quote that they say, or you see it in a mannerism, you write it in your notebook and you think, I got it, close quote. How do you pull off that balance? Of that's from of, the long form you know, po- podcast, chummy. right? Yes, that's from the long form podcast. And how do you, how do you pull off that balance? Uh, you put the balance. I mean, that makes me sound really craven. I mean, it's funny because it makes me, you know, everybody pulls out that one part of the, the recent uh Joan Didion documentary about which I wrote a profile, by the way, um, called, you know, and oh, she, yes, yes, I read that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, but she says something about like, you know, seeing the five year old on acid and saying it was gold and everyone's like, oh, how, how, how could Joan see a child on acid? And her first reaction is this, you know, I'm going to mine this for something like it's so there's something bankrupt about it or at least cold. Um, But I actually looked at that moment and I realized that she wasn't, I don't think she was trying to say like it was gold and I didn't care. I think she was almost saying I cared so much. I knew it was gold. Um, And I think there's something to it. Let me. Yeah, go on. Yeah. yeah. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm I'm sorry to interrupt you. I'm not, I didn't read the quote because I thought it made you sound craven at all. I actually (laughs) find the quote refresh, refreshingly honest because it, look, I have felt that myself. I have felt exactly what you said myself numerous times, not just in profiles, but also just in doing investigative stories where there's this moment where you know, you, you say you're going to betray them, but somebody says something maybe that's so revealing that they wish they could have back or that, you know, is this unvarnished, weirdly honest moment that you're going to mine. And but that's our well, job. And I think it is our job and it's the job that somebody has hired you to do. And I think betray may have been the wrong word choice for there, because I think, you know, my goal when I'm writing a profile of someone is never to betray them and if if anything it's to do them justice and sometimes that involves you know being honest about something they said um but I think you know I am always I think if I if I have any sort of 
I try to bring empathy when I write. And I think, you know, because I've been written about and it uh, it's terrifying. And, and I, I honestly, even just doing a podcast like this, I'm always like, oh, am I saying it correctly? Like my words are going to be used against me. I hate this. And so I can't I can't even begin to imagine how scary it is to walk around with a reporter. I mean, and so many of these profiles that you do are, are set in settings that are so like engineered to be comfortable. So it's so easy to get lulled, you know, it's like, oh, let's go to the fanciest restaurant where I'll buy your meal and then let's go to a beautiful museum or like let's walk through wildflowers. Like it's like very much like a great first date, you know, all the time. And so you have, you know, you have this sense that you're lulling people into, into comfort and you don't want to abuse that because you don't want to be like, now let me get you to reveal this, the, the scariest thing or whatever. You know, also a lot of people are very press trained at this point and they, they only reveal what they want to reveal and that can be frustrating in its own way. But I think, you know, my job is like to have as much empathy for people in this situation, knowing that's really hard to be interviewed as well. Um, and when they say the thing that you know you got, it's often not even a bad thing. Like, you know, I think when I was talking about that, I might have been referring to like the profile I wrote of Abby and Alana, um, the creators of Broad City for Grantland, which is, a, I think, it, one of my favorite ones I've ever done. And that was just like, I just knew I got it when I saw uh, Ilana performing fellatio on a tree. Like that, and that's not even, that's just so her. That's just like, that's classic Broad City, you know? And I was like, thank God they did something raunchy and gross in front of me. Like, perfect. We got, we got a lead. Um, but it wasn't like I was like, and I nailed them. Like they're, they're you know, I, I'm such a, I was so joyful about what they were doing that I, I was just really happy to have an example, you know? So I don't think it's always like, betray might not be the right word there is all I'm saying. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I think I I agree. And it's not it's not like a gotcha. It's more of a, okay, here's a moment that's unique, that maybe is illustrative in a way that's fresh that I, I haven't read in 17 prior profiles. Right. I mean, it's really about the, the get often is, you know, the get is often used just to get access to somebody. But there's also a get moment when you're doing these profiles. At least that's the way I think about them. And it's not necessarily a gotcha. Well, yeah, and there's also a sense of like, you know, you you also know um, how much is not going to go into the piece. I mean, the, the I would right. so love to hear. I mean, you've talked to Taffy, right, or, or any of these really yes. yeah. the the top the topest of the top of the field, Taffy and Katie and all these great people. But you know, I think there's there they can anyone can tell you that writes profiles that there's so much left on the cutting room floor, and often it's and it's just. It, it, it's some of the most meaningful parts of the conversation that you had. It's just not germane to the narrative. Um, but you f- you have to wade through so much to get to these points that you're going to use. And and so I think once you realize you have one of those flashpoints, you're like, oh, something I can use. Like it feels it, – it, it's actually, I think, very – comforting for both parties because then you can kind of open up afterwards like once you've gotten something usable on tape you're like okay now we can have a real talk um you know a lot of which will or will not make it into the profile so i think it's a it's just an interesting and you know you never know what you're going to be able to use before you have the interview either you never go in with an agenda never never that's that's just a must but i think you know throughout the course of the conversation when somebody's saying something honest and fresh and new and it's such a such a like relief when that finally happens sometimes it never happens i'm sure you've been in those interviews where you're like oh gosh this is just not going to happen today 
Yeah, I was going to ask, you anticipated my next question because you mentioned earlier about the sort of performance aspect of profile writing and just of reporting. And it's really true. I sometimes do feel, you know, you want to be as authentic as possible. Obviously, uh, you want your subjects to be that way, too. And so you're trying to put them in a comfort zone naturally. And like you said, I love your description of uh, of it being sort of like a first date because it is it definitely feel has felt like that. Well, and that's why I think, you know, a lot of the people that write profiles are a certain, it's a certain kind of person that gravitates towards this work. And, you know, because I think you have to really want like people. Um, I mean, there are some people I've met that are really good profiles that are super shy and I don't know how they do it. But most people I know are really gregarious people um, and, you know. I find myself talking to my friends who write profiles and telling them too much within 15 minutes of them talking to me. And I'm like, oh, that's why you're so good. (laughs) Um, You know, but I think, (laughs) yeah, it's like, (laughs) be careful if you're talking to somebody who writes a lot of profiles because they will ask you really incisive questions very quickly without even knowing it because they're just used to having those kinds of conversations with people. But I think, you know, when you're talking about the performance aspect, yeah, I mean, there's an interview self that you put on. I mean, when I know that I'm going to have to do a profile and I haven't done one, I guess in my last one I did, that was a big profile was in the Times Magazine in December. I profiled Rachel Brosnahan. But um, I have a couple more that I'm working on. I think we put that one on the list as well. Oh, uh, yeah, I think and we can talk about that one cuz it's one of my most recent ones I can tell the process, but I think when you're when you're when you're doing it it's like um you know you're going to do it. It's almost like psyching. It's, the date thing is very apt because you get psyched up for you like, okay, we're going to go to this museum, we're going to walk around. I just did a profile that's coming out um in the, it was just a little profile for the book section of the Times of a new author. And one of the things that we did was we went to a museum. We were going to go to an aquarium um, because it was apropos to the subject of the book, but it turned out to be too much logistics. So we went to the Natural History Museum and walked around the Aquatic Life um, exhibition. And it was just like, you know, you have to get yourself psyched up. It's like, it's almost like, you know, meeting somebody from Tinder or something. You're like, okay, I'm going to look cute. I have my interview outfit on. I've like, you know, I prepared all my questions. I've done all my background reading. And then when you get there, you drop all that. And you're like, I have to be just a normal person. I have to be chill. I can't be anxious. I can't have any sense of like, I don't know what I'm doing. It has to be very conversational, very natural. So, you know, you know, it's very much like a whole thing. It's in a lot of ways, it's really a good use of being, of having, trained in in drama because you have to play a little bit of a character when you do these things i mean obviously i'm myself i never have a conversation with people that's not like just me talking and you know a lot of myself is revealed on the tapes i mean i i I honestly think one of the most interesting things in the world would be to get to hear the other side of the tapes when you know people have been profiled because in order to learn about people you often have to talk about yourself right so a lot of my transcripts are just yes. me being like, oh, I remember when I, you know, they're like, oh, it was so hard for me when I was in school. I was bullied. And then you're like, I also was. And then you get into this conversation about it that's very deep and very, very meaningful. And then you only have to use their side. So it's very funny in that way. Um, so, you know, you, you end up revealing a lot of yourself on these dates as well. 
Yes, you do. And I agree. I think that'd be a really cool thing to occasionally, you know, just do a transcript um, in a profile, almost as a sidebar of a certain conversation, whether it's about bullying or whatever, where, you know, you actually see the writer revealing things and, and the way the writer certainly would be instructive for writers and, and how, you know, a magazine writer uses herself um, and her own experiences to draw out a subject um, in a conversation like that and seeing a transcript would be really cool. Yeah, and again, it's never, like, purposeful. It's not like, oh, I'm going to calculate this by telling something about myself. I'm going to get something. It's just a real conversation. I mean, I just love to talk to people, obviously. We've been talking forever already. It's like, I just like listening to people hearing hearing what they have to say and having, like, you know, and and you can't really have a good conversational flow unless it's two-sided. Absolutely. And the best interviews, as as you know, we often say, and I know you agree with this, are conversations. They're not Q&As. They're not, mm-hmm. you know, you should never, if you're, you know, young writers listening, ever go to an interview or do an interview on the phone where you're just reading a list of questions. It's got to be back and forth. It's got to be a natural, organic conversation that, that way your subject feels comfortable. And I mean, that's critical. That's sort of interviewing. Yeah. I mean, I always tell people when you're going to interview someone, especially for like a profile set, I mean, if it's like a quick Q&A or some kind of like a vulture thing where you're going to do just a quick transcript of some something they did on TV last night. I mean, you can go in with your questions and ask them. But generally, I always say prepare an entire list of questions and then don't ever look at it. Like, you, you know, <laughs> like commit it to memory, have a hazy outline of the things you wanted to get to and then put it away. You won't be needing it um, because yeah. the minute you yeah. start, Let, I mean, listen. it's like, yeah. Yeah, you got to listen. You got to listen carefully to every everything because there's and and also and I'm sure you'll agree the silences are critical. Like don't you don't have to fill a silence. If somebody's thinking about something, let them continue to think. They're more likely not wondering whether they're going to reveal something to you or thinking about saying something that they've already said in a maybe either more revealing way or a more poignant way. I mean, those silences are are critical, right, Rachel? You just uh, yeah, I'm trying up. to be silent. No, I yeah, I think um, <laughs> I think also there's a there's a real thing. You know, I can always tell when I was really engaged in the conversation or not when you listen back to the transcript and somebody is saying something and they're on sort of a, a monologue on a roll and the whole time you're listening to it and transcribing it, you're like. Rachel, you better ask this follow-up question. They brought up a really interesting thing. You know, sometimes I'll transcribe my things right away and sometimes I'll do it a couple weeks later so I won't totally remember what I said. And you, you're listening to it and you're like, Rachel, girl, did you follow up on this, right? And I'll always know that I was like really in the zone when I want myself to ask a follow-up question and then I actually do. Have you ever surprised yourself like when you're listening to a transcript and you're like, she did it. She asked the follow-up. Way to go. She yes, she picked yes. out the one interesting yeah. detail and <laughs> and zoomed in on it. And then sometimes you'll be listening and you're like, you dropped the ball here. This was a completely interesting line of thinking that you just did not pick up on until later. And you then you, that's that's when usually, fortunately, if you're writing a big profile, you get second interviews. Um, then you can go back to it. But if you don't get to go back to it, then you just feel like, oh, man, you are not listening as well as you could have been listening because she gave you something here she was trying to give you a, a through line that you didn't pick up on you know so it's always like I find out I learn I learn how to do it better by listening to my transcripts that's why I have people transcribe for me when I'm on a really really quick deadline um, and I have a few trusted people that I trust to transcribe my stuff but when I'm writing a big profile I completely always do the transcripts by myself 
mostly because I it's like learning about what I want to ask them again and also it just helps me for next time that I get to do it learn about what I should do better yeah and 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 sometimes the slow process of it it it, it is you know you're you're thinking and you're listening and as you said you're there's openings that you can ask uh, in the future, and it, it just works that way. I do want to ask you about the Rachel Brosnahan um, yeah. profile that you that you mentioned. I, I love that piece because I, I felt like what you did is you brought the great Rachel Syme style and great references to sort of minutiae and creative turns of phrase to the Times magazine and, you know, despite the Times' occasional tendency to stuffiness. And I think you, you pulled that <laughs> Well, the you piece was about a comedian. It had to have a bounce. Yes, it had to have a bounce. It, it And it absolutely did. It was, it was just, it, there's just some great lines in there. T- t- tell me a little bit about how that story came about and, and how you pulled it off. Well, it came about um, in a pretty natural way for profiles to come about which is that I saw a screener of her show The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel um, and thought she was just phenomenal in it and then I went to the Times Magazine and said this girl is a star and she needs to have a story written about her and the funny thing about the Times Magazine is like their celebrity profile coverage is very opaque it's hard to tell what they're gonna do I think it's beautiful and I love when they do it I mean they had several of my favorite profiles last year Um, But it's also like they'll do, you know, a a lot of major cultural figures. You know, they'll have big profiles on, you know, big authors that have won Pulitzer Prizes or, you know, musicians that have been around for four decades. But in terms of doing starlets and ingenues, it's not technically a thing they do all that often. It's not typical of them. Um, And so this was actually kind of a leap of faith on their part, which I really, really thank them for because I think, you know, breaking someone in the pages of the, of the Times Magazine is not, it's not really done that often as I, as I'm sure you can attest. It's, yes. it was a, it was a little bit of a for strange sure. fit, but it was cool because I think they wanted to try it. And I think it ended up being super fortuitous because she won the Emmy shortly after the piece ran. Um, so it felt very like, uh, yeah, you were ahead of the curve. Um, but it, you know, it was completely at t- <laughs> clairvoyant at the time. Yeah, I was no, just I mean, obsessed and, with and her. I, and when and when she won the Emmy, I was like, I know who she is. Like, you know, occasionally, I don't know who these people are, but I was like, you know, because I'd read your story, I knew. And you have a great line in there too, Rachel. I wanted just to read this really this line to the line to back to you because it's one of my favorite lines in the piece. In a world of hamburger rolls for television ingenues, Midge was a porterhouse. I just love that. <laughs> Great sentence. Well, <laughs> yeah, and I think you know that that was my uh, my way of saying how can I say she was a meaty role but better. <laughs> um, but I think it, yes, yeah. it, was, it said perfectly. <laughs> I think you know, and in terms of that that profile, I think one of the things that you know, since I know this this podcast is also about craft, it's like when you're talking about detail, it's like she told me uh, on our second interview that she had been sick when she auditioned for the part. And that was a little, she, it was just a throw off line, you know, oh gosh, when I auditioned for this part, I was so sick. And I pushed her on it because I was like, that's, how sick were you? You know, and and once we started talking about it, it turned out she was like almost too sick to go on a plane. 
she couldn't remember anything about it. She was falling over. She ended up having to like, you know, go on antibiotics. Wow. She was just really sick, right? Um, but she didn't want to lose the part. And so she she had she flew out anyway. I mean, she flew out deathly ill, performed it while being, you know, ha- having like a hundred and something fever. And that got her the part. Like the her her sort of like sweaty, deranged performance was the thing that clinched the role for her. And when I learned that, I was like, that's such a great detail because who auditions sick, let alone for a part where you're supposed to be like jubilant. So I just thought that was like a really right. interesting sort of contrast and and it, it and it and that was how I found my lead because I felt like it's such a comic present a premise that there's this woman she's never done comedy before she has to audition doing stand up in an empty room to Amy Sherman Palladino and Dan Palladino the creators of the Gilmore Girls and she's the dramatic actor she's never done comedy a day in her life and she has to make them laugh and by the way she's dying like, it's just, there's something about it that's like, it's literal, I'm dying up here, you know? So I, I felt like there was something about that that was really funny. But it took a while to get to that detail. I mean, we had, that piece had like six different leads. Yeah, it's it, it's a fantastic piece. And we'll link to it. And I encourage all of our listeners to read it if you haven't already uh, read it. It's, it. it's great. So, Rachel, I want to ask you a couple more quick questions. Yeah. We have a hard out coming up here. But it's all since good. 2016, you've taught some... Yeah. Oh, I appreciate all the time. Since since t- 2016, you've taught some writing classes in New York. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious what it's like to transition from the person getting advice from editors and maybe colleagues and other folks and friends to the person giving advice. And you know, what glimpses of yourself do you see in some of the younger writers you're working with as well? I have loved, I've taught two classes now and I have loved both classes and a couple of my students have um, gone on to be working in the industry. I, I probably know thanks to me, although I've, I've, I've been trying to help everybody get bylines. Um, but I think, you know, it's wonderful to see young writers doing it and pursuing it. I hate nothing more than people who give the advice to young writers that you shouldn't go into this because the industry's changed so much and there's no money in it anymore and it's it's just, you know, impossible, blah, blah, blah. I think it's not impossible. I think we need good writing more than ever and and good reporting and, and I think, you know, things are changing and it's really, really difficult and it's difficult even for those of us who've been working in it for a long time, but that doesn't mean that if it's what you feel like you really want to do, you shouldn't do it. So it's always good to teach because you see people that are you know, where you were when you first started. I mean, that 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 girl who was waitressing brunch and working as an intern. I mean, I see girls and, and men and women who are coming up in in with that same kind of starry eyed. I just moved to New York. I want to be a writer. It would mean the world to me to have my byline in any publication ever anywhere kind of enthusiasm. And when you when you're met with that, you can't help but feel grateful to work in a, in, in, in the industry. But also you, you know, I, I learn about the parts of myself um, that need improvement by teaching others and also about things that I didn't think I knew that end up being helpful. I mean, a lot of the experiential stuff that I have learned along the way, I find has been the most helpful as opposed to, um, you know, the more typical writing advice. I mean, I'm always down to do that. And I, and I love to talk to people about craft. I mean, I've worked as an editor off and on over the years, too. And I also you know, still do some editing of friends' books and that kinds of things. I mean, I love helping people on a sentence-by-sentence granular 
way but I think in terms of what I've found when I'm teaching is that a lot of the stuff that tends to help is the stuff that I thought I usually tend to think of as second nature like you know how to pitch a story and and what do you do when a publication says no and when you are you know interviewing someone how do you know you know what's appropriate to ask how do you get to the next question how do you know when when's a good place to end you know these things that I feel like are so natural to me now I I feel like people don't think to teach and they're the tend to be the most useful um so it's been fun to re-explore those things that I didn't even realize I'd kind of learned along the way by teaching them to others very cool is that useful (laughs) Oh, incredibly useful. No, I, I I love your answer. And it's, you know, it the, the sort of real world experience stuff is vital because I talk to young um, students, journalism students and young reporters and writers all the time as well. And, and the you know, when I was coming up, I mean, this was a long time ago. It was 30 years ago, but I've had to reinvent myself and be a cross-platform journalist. And, and anytime you can, you know, tell you know, kids that they're kids to me that, you know, you're, you're just, you know, I'm, I'm in my early fifties. I have had to reinvent myself numerous times. You have to pivot constantly. You do. Yeah. Find, you know, you you know, that's the best lesson. And I agree with you, Rachel, completely. These people that say, well, I'm not gonna, you know, I, I really don't think people should go in this business. It's a brutal business. There's no money. I mean, that's just so defeatist and awful. I mean, you know, it's, and, and the idealism of young people who, you know, want to write, they they want the experiences that you and I have been lucky enough to have. I mean, what better gift to give them than try to give them the best real world advice you can in helping them achieve those dreams? There's nothing more important that you can do. Well, and like you said, the reinvention, I mean, I've had to, like you said, yeah, even in the 13 years I've been, wow, working in this business, like I've had to reinvent myself so many times. I've been an editor. I've been a writer. I've been... Uh, an essayist I've been a critic I've been a you know I've I've been a I've had different beats you know first I write about celebrities then I write about music then I write about fashion I mean it's it's really you just have to keep going and I think that um, the young people that are starting now are gonna have to reinvent themselves to figure out what the industry is gonna look like in a few years but that doesn't mean they won't there won't be opportunities, you know? And I think the best thing you can do is just try to prepare people for that. And also, you know, I still think that good journalism is good journalism. And I I really love to push people to do the best work that they can do. Yeah. And speaking and, and speaking of reinvention and reinventing yourself, last month you and Helena decided to transition your beloved newsletter series, The Dry Down, into a subscription model. Yeah, I'm very interested in that because as being a co-founder of the Sunday Long Read, this may be something we do at some point. So I've been sort of watching what you guys have been doing carefully. But I'm curious, since your operation is quite extensive with these monthly and weekly posts, as well as a whole other, um, a whole online community, in opting to monetize the newsletter, how did you go about making that decision? Well, Helena had... um 
started the process by monetizing her own newsletter called Grief Bacon, which is like one of was one of the most popular tiny letters on the service and just this beautiful compendium of essays that she writes about New York and it contains some of my favorite writing of all time. And it had gone really well uh, in so much as she really liked the people that worked at this this service substack and, and found it very easy and the letters looked really beautiful. And so she said, we, we started to have this conversation about possibly doing this with the dry down. And the thing about the dry down is like, this is so super a passion project for both of us. I mean, we started it in the dead of winter a year ago when we were both really, really really sort of sad and out of it and both of us love perfume and had these texts back and forth about them and I write about I've been a perfume writer for a while it's such a funny beat like it's not really a real job to be a perfume writer but it's isn't so much as one can invent it for themselves I've been doing it um and so you know we started doing this and 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 putting these newsletters out just as a fun thing and it turned into a lot bigger of a project than we thought I mean we just suddenly had thousands of subscribers tons of fans we threw these events that sold out in the city um and it turned out that there was just like a lot of hunger for the content that we were making and we had a real conversation about it though at the end of the last year because you know I'm doing a thousand things show as she um both of us are working on book projects and so we were just like we should figure out what we can do to make this a sustainable project for both of us in so much as you know it's hard to do this as regular as we want to do when we're when it's something that we can always put off because it's we're doing it for free and and that that's that said we're still going to be putting free letters out every now and then and we totally understand that not everybody can or should have to pay for um people's writing but we also felt like this was something that people were just very devoted to and so we wanted to try it and see what would happen and it's been going really really well and people are really responding well to it we've gotten just a bunch of people that are really excited about the possibility because you know we basically wrote a full book over the course of last year that we were doing for free (laughs) I mean, at, at a certain point, people were like sending us, a, we have a, a Slack community and people were sending us, you know, notes being like, how can we pay you? Um, yeah. So we gave them, we gave them an opportunity to, I mean, I still don't know. I still feel sometimes like that formula to have a subscription, you know, personal project feels a little bit like it's still being worked out. But I also feel like so many people have podcasts, so many people have newsletters, so many people have like zines. I mean, everybody has a little side thing going on. I'm not I, I actually think it's kind of the wave of the future. How do you feel about it? I, I agree. I think so, too. This, you know, the Sunday Long Read started in 2014 with Jacob Feldman as a total kind of just side hustle, labor of love. Never anticipated we'd have thousands of subscribers that same thing send us notes all the time how can we pay you i mean it's it's become a valuable part of a lot of people's sunday mornings and um so it's it, that was that was not our intention you know so rachel how does it feel when you hear that you're outstanding at twitter i mean it makes me feel like i might have wasted a lot of my life but i will say um <laughs> like <laughs> I don't know. Twitter is a whole thing. I went off of it for a month in February and found that a really refreshing change of pace. Um, I don't, I don't use it as much as I used to. uh, But I also feel like so many good things in my life have come from that silly website. It's like, um, I met the person I'm going to marry there. I have gotten tons of job opportunities. Yeah.
you know, great job opportunities. I've met a ton of writers. I've become friendly with my heroes. I mean, it's just like kind of a crazy thing that's happened. But I think part of it is because it's very much like what you put into it, you get out, sadly, like any other thing in life, except for the difference with Twitter is it doesn't pay you anything. So it's just a ton of free labor. But, um, you know, I, I just like having the outlet. I mean, it's a spigot for me. It's a performative, you know, I think the thing about Twitter is like, if anything taps into my my desire to have one day have been an actress, I think Twitter is probably closest because it's just it's pure performance and you you have a persona. I mean, my Twitter persona. I mean, it's very it, it is me, but it's also an exaggerated or heightened version of me. I mean, the things I notice it, it, often, I'll put them on Twitter because I could never say them to someone, even though I'm saying them to many thousands of people at once. I don't know, it's a, it's sort of a funny psycho psychological experiment, but um, yeah, I mean, I, 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 think, I think that's a compliment. <laughs> I mean, who knows, it, being good at Twitter, it's, it's just short form writing, you know? It's, it's, it's quipping, for better or worse, quipping your life away. It is, it's, it is, it is, qui it is quipping. And I, I always see Twitter as sort of, you know, the water fountain, uh, you know, where people congregate in an office. And if you don't work in an office and neither one of us do, it's also a chance to just sort of say funny things and have people react to them. I mean, I, I, I like it. I like it for that reason. It's yeah. a place to work out ideas. I mean, I've found it extremely generative in that way, which is to say I've had ideas that are maybe zygotic little, you know, barely kernels of ideas and I put sort of, I, I test the water on Twitter. I say like, oh, is this a thing? And sometimes it comes back to you tenfold and it's like, oh gosh, this is a piece. This is, this is, you know, and I, I've written several pieces where I have along the way kind of worked out my ideas tacitly, you know, via Twitter and it's made the, the work stronger. I mean, there's also things that I work on that I would never tell anyone online about that because I, I guard things closely too. But I think there's, you know, you there's certain times when it's really useful to get that feedback. So it's been a really good feedback engine for me. Also, it's just a great way to share your enthusiasms. I mean, one thing that I think marks my my use of that, that platform the most probably is that I just want to use it to tell people about things I think are great and then hopefully other people will discover them. It's like I'm constantly being like, buy this book. And then the funny thing is people actually do. Um, so I, I feel very much like that's been really cool because I am able to sort of support work that I believe in that way. Yeah, I, I agree. You had a you had a tweet um, on April 2nd that I want to read to our listeners because this goes to exactly what you're talking about. You, you wrote on Twitter, I feel like the Internet was really full of things we didn't like today. As a small corrective, please feel free to fill this thread with something you have loved lately and feel wildly enthusiastic about a book, a recipe, a poem a new brand of detergent, whatever. And you started and described this detergent that you really <laughs> like. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, literally, I love this detergent. So then it got full. It was great. I, I went away, I came back, and there was, like, 200 responses. And it was all just people saying, like, you know, I love this new type of cheese that my market's been stocking, or my son did something cute today, or here's my dog asleep. And it just made me feel like very happy because I think that day had been full of like two different hate reads and just a bunch of stuff online. It was just, you know, Twitter's a minefield these days. It's just full of trolls and bad political news and, you know, people calling each other. I mean, it's, it's a, it's very difficult to navigate it. And 
walk away every day feeling happy. I think it's it's much more a locus of my anxiety as these days than it is if my happy place. But I think you're you're right. Threads like that always sort of bring me back to understanding what community can look like online. I mean, the thing about online is like everyone's like, ugh, the internet. Like it's everything about it is bad and you know we're wasting our lives there i mean that's like the going the new vogue in my generation anyways to just constantly talk about how you're like gonna leave twitter it's like the new one leaving new york essay um and i did do it for a month and it was it was useful for me but i do think you know it's not inherently a bad place i think there's a lot of really there's a lot of potential in it and i've seen i've i've experienced so much joy from it that i feel like i'm just trying to recapture that all the time May not happen anymore, but yeah, my, my I'm, I'm, yeah, yeah, my rule is very simple, Rachel. It's that I ignore all the trolls. I just do not engage with them. Every once in a while, I will like just once, just to scratch that itch, and then for months, I just ignore them. And I think they've sort of figured that out because when you do that, you get trolled less. I mean, when you don't engage, and you know, I. You know, it sort of works. People sort of the trolls sort of okay. He, he it's a troll free zone, and I'm not going to get very far. And and when you do that, and you just avoid the negativity, then there is a lot of positive stuff. Yeah, and I try to do that. I mean, I try to stay in the positive. I try to stay in the zone. I mean, sometimes I wish I could. I have like Twitter heroes that are like you know, uh, very vocal about their trolls, like my friend, you know, like Helen Rosner or something, who's just like, here, this guy said this mm-hmm. thing about me. Let's all, you know, and I think there's something to that in a way, which is like, you know, I think p- taking up space and understanding that, like when people try to try to come for you, there's, you, you have a recourse to fight back. Um, but, but generally, you know, I just ignore, I'm, I'm very much in the school of like, let's keep it, let's keep it light and fun people. Um, Absolutely. So, yeah. It's it's been a good thing. I've been on it for a long time. I can't believe I've been on Twitter for a decade. When I when I when I realized that, it really made me wonder where my life has gone. <laughs> well, I'm coming up on my decade anniversary next January. Yeah, and 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 I have the same thought you do. Like, man, that's a lot of wasted time. But but you do you do get some something back as you said uh, as well. Mm-hmm. So it, it's it's worth it. I wanted to ask you. Uh, about details. Laura Marsh, the literary editor of the New Republic, sent me some great thoughts about how wonderful you are at including unexpected and illuminating details in your pieces. And it helped inform some of the questions I asked you earlier in the podcast. But she had some examples Mm -hmm. like the fact that David Lynch originally wanted to make a TV show about Marilyn Monroe before he Mm -hmm. created the character of Laura Palmer for Twin Peaks, which is very cool, which I didn't know until I saw this. Yeah, he had optioned optioned a Marilyn Monroe biography. Oh, that's that's yeah. So so that's that's fascinating. But but her her question for you, which is a really good one, is sort of how in your research do you you know how much how much you put into your research um, before you even begin a profile and then how are you during that research thinking about these sort of kind of details that can provide a fresh look at a subject I put in a ton of research uh, probably too much I mean I'm a I love research like any opportunity I have to do a day a half day of deep dive into anything I will take it I mean it's really my my most favorite thing but um yeah no I mean I do a ton of research and I think Laura has had to deal with this firsthand because I I write about tv for her for the new republic and i um often will do so much more research than I maybe even need to for pieces like you know like we did a piece about um 
Alias Grace, this show that was adapted from Margaret Atwood novel. And in, in so doing, I went back and read like every novel Margaret Atwood had written about uh, that was historical fiction. And then also looked into the lives of uh, every all the creators and then also um, looked into the, the 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 TV show uses a theme song um, pretty effectively. That's this acapella version of a English canticle and it's really striking and they were using it at the end of every single episode. So I figured that was a pretty strong aesthetic choice. So I looked into that song and it turned out that it was written by this woman who sort of disappeared off the face of the earth and became kind of a, a, a recluse in I don't know how to pronounce them, but they're like Hebrid, Hebrides. Is that how you pronounce those like islands off of Scotland? Anyways, she, that ended up becoming the basis of the piece because I found this sort of detail about like this woman who um, was uh, in her own way lost and it turned into the piece. And I think for me, that's what's always so fun about research, which is that you can find cross connection. You can find connections across time. I mean, that's like how... I like to write in general, which is like a very connective way of thinking. It's like, you know, maybe it's because my brain has been on the internet too long, but I think of everything as like clicking links, you know, between things. It's like, you know, the historical only informs the present and the present informs the historical. And I don't think that they're anathema, you know, I think they're, they're, they're talk, everything is talking through time. So for me, doing the research is one of my favorite things and in and, and profiles, too. It's like somebody's past and their career and everything they've done up to this point doesn't define them in any in any tangible way, but it completely communicates with who they are now. So I love doing the research. Yeah. Do, do you find, Rachel, when when you really know a subject um, and you're asking really smart, informed questions that that helps during the interview? Yeah, I mean, I think over preparing is always the side to err on. Um, I think when you know about something, it helps you get deeper. I mean, I think, I think, you know, you want to have one thing going into an interview with someone that they know a lot about. And also you do. Because if anything, and that can just be the project they're working on currently. And that's how a lot of interviews go, right? You don't really know that you have a common interest with somebody, but you really have prepared a lot to talk to them about the work they're currently doing. And so you can really get into it. You know, you can be like, I read or I heard that you, you know, didn't talk to anyone for seven days. You went to the woods and I want to know everything about that. And I've thought a lot about like, did you read this book to prepare? Did you read the source material? Are you a big fan of the book? You can get them there. But also it's really good to just do enough research to be like, oh, this person's like really into, you know, going kayaking or something. And then you can maybe be like, I'm just going to find out some briefest things that I can do to sort of like engage them on a thing they really care about. Because I think, you know, the, the truth is the more prepared you can be, the better just because it doesn't waste someone's time, but also because I think people like to talk about the things that they really, really love and they care about. I mean, you, if, if I've learned one thing from doing interviews with people that are well-known, it's that they've had to do so many boring interviews in their lives. They're just, it's just like the minute you can ask them about something they haven't been asked about before, or just show them that you cared enough to do the research beyond just like, I hear you have a new movie coming out. Like right. <laughs> if you push past those questions, yep. they are so grateful because it's just something new to talk about, you know? Yeah. I, I, so I think I if, I, my adv if I have advice for anyone, it's just like come up with two questions you think they probably haven't heard yet. 
Yeah, and those questions will emerge if you really do the deep dive research, which is which is critical. Mm-hmm. I, I have found, and and and, uh, and I'm thrilled to hear you do you do it that way too. Well, this has been great, Rachel. I can't thank you enough. Before I let you go, I want to ask thank you, you. Um, wh- which is your favorite piece of writing by F. Scott Fitzgerald? You asked me mine, but I want to ask you yours. Oh, so hard. Um, well, I'm a tender as the night person, uh, which is, I know, a controversial pick because some people say it's his most beautiful novel and some people say it's a mess. I think it's both. I think it's a beautiful mess. Um, and I'm also a crack up person. I like his nonfiction, especially the uh, series of pieces he wrote in 1936 for Esquire about depression. I think they're some of the most trenchant writing about uh, fragile masculinity that um, was produced in that period. And he really nailed it. And got nailed for it. All of his friends sort of turned on him for writing these confessional essays, but I think they're beautiful and I love them. Right. And then Hemingway that, had the ultimate yeah. <laughs> revenge, right? With a movable feast. And, uh, and yeah, he wrote him into the short story. Well, you right. Know, well, right after that, he had written him into the, the short story. And then Fitz wrote him and said, can you please change the name? You know, because I think it was Snows of Kilimanjaro he'd written him into yep. it, the sad drunk that was referenced. And then yeah, no, and then, of course, Movable Feast, which is, like, a very hotly contested, you know, that whole he, thing. Well, he, cru- he just crushed endowment. him. Yeah, he crushed him on the endowment, exactly. Hemingway and, uh, was that, that... a jerk. Let's be <laughs> honest. That guy was... But, you know, he had his own thing going on. They had a, they were frenemies, you know. Their letters are just, like, hilarious. You read them, and it's just, like, the admiration and the rage that's boiling under all the time in equal parts is very, very silly. Yeah, but I side I side with Fitzgerald uh, on this because Fitzgerald helped Hemingway, and you know if if a, if a writer helps you, oh, he got him his first book deal. That's right, he got him the sun also rises. <laughs> yeah, if, if you, he introduced and, him and, to Max Perkins. That's right, and if you turn the way Hemingway does on somebody who helps you get your first book published and basically helps make you, you're a bad guy. I, I'm sorry, I don't, I, you know, that's it. That's an easy call, Fitzgerald all the way. All right, Rachel, thank you so much. Good luck with everything. I can't wait to read your book. Um, This has really been wonderful. Thank you so much for making time. Thank you, Don. Well, thank you. Thanks to all of you for listening to the Sunday Long Read Podcast. For the best long-form journalism, join our weekly party with our free newsletter. You can get it at www.sundaylongread.com backslash subscribe. The Sunday Long Read drops every Sunday morning in your inbox at around 8 a.m. Eastern time. Special thanks to this episode's producer, Peter Bailey Wells. Future guests on this podcast will include Steve Amond, Charlotte Wilder, Brett Michael Dykes, and two of my ESPN colleagues, Bonnie Ford and Tom Janot. My name is Don Van Natta. Thank you again to Rachel Syme for a fantastic conversation. And thanks again to all of you for listening. Before you know it, we will return with another great guest. See you soon. Mm-hmm.